Hello and welcome back to Tani Talks Life, the sheer where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons which we try to do in a bi-weekly format. Tonight's topic is of hindsight and foresight. Sources are from safaria.org and elsewhere. All our shiurim are on shearenjoyment.com slash shiurim slash shiurim dash reb dash Shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. for all their wonderfully hard work. The newly revamped Tani Talks formats, like TED Talks or Ellie Talks, but we call it Tani Talks, thanks to the wonderful mentor, role model who I touched base with recently, including the Life Series, Perke Avos, Parsha, and OT shows are on different podcast forums, while the DAF show is on sheer enjoyment. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, suggestions, topic ideas, or just want to reach out, please feel free to email me anytime at rebt at sheerenjoyment.com. The sheer should serve as a zechus and yeshua and refuah for anyone who wants and anyone who needs. How often do you feel like you could have predicted something? How often do you look back and think, yes, I knew that would happen? How often do you read a book predicting what would happen? Or a TV show or movie thinking how it will end. And when it does end, saying to yourself, I knew it from the start. I knew it was going to be the butler. I knew it. Like the game of Clue. I knew it was the professor. I knew it from the start. This is what is called in psychology the hindsight bias. They say that hindsight is 2020. 20 slash 20, 2020 vision. 2020 was not a great year. But we're talking about hindsight is 2020. But is that really so? This is a principle that was taught to me in undergrad as a psych major that I found fascinating. Wikipedia explains hindsight bias, also known as the I knew it all along phenomenon or creeping determinism, is the common tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they actually were. People often believe that after an event has occurred, they would have predicted or perhaps even would have known with a high degree of certainty what the outcome of the event would have been before the event occurred. Hindsight bias may cause distortions of memories of what was known or believed before an event occurred and is a significant source of overconfidence regarding an individual's ability to predict the outcomes of future events. Examples of hindsight bias can be seen in the writings of historians describing outcomes of battles, physicians recalling clinical trials, and in judicial systems as individuals attribute responsibility on the basis of the supposed predictability of accidents. Very Well Mind explains, after an event, people often believe that they knew the outcome of the event before it actually happened. This is why it is often referred to as the I knew it all along phenomenon. The hindsight bias involves the tendency people have to assume that they knew the outcome of an event after the outcome has already been determined. It's like when we're reading a novel, a Jewish novel, and my wife says, I know what's going to happen in this book. I can predict the entire story. 
but let's read it anyway. I always say read it little by little. I'm not going to tell you what happens. Just try to understand. Just try to get through the book. I love Jewish novels. I love mystery, thriller, suspense, but try not to guess what's going to happen. And after the outcome, yeah, I knew it was... uh, it was the prof- I knew it was him. I knew it was her. I knew it was that guy. I knew it was Michael all along. We never really know. We look back and we think we knew. So hindsight bias is a belief that we could have predicted something. But too often, all too often, unfortunately, way too often, we look back wishing and regretting and having the rose goggles, the 2020 vision-colored glasses looking to the past. If only we had the ability to think ahead or foresee things for the future, how better things would be if we would just plan out things and prepare for the future. This is the power of the idea of foresight versus the sad looking back of what is seen as hindsight. The Gemara points out in Gemara Tamid, Tamid in the Talmud, Alexander the Great has interesting discussions with people around the Gemara, across the Gemara. I believe it's Shema HaSadik, Shema the Righteous, who, who has, a, has a distinct conversation with him, maybe Rabbi Gamliel, but I'm pretty sure it's Shema. And um, they have very interesting conversations. And, the, uh, and Alexander the Great, who is known as the great conqueror of the ancient world from Greece, he what, had an inter had an had conversations, interviews, so to speak, with the Jewish sages. And he would talk to them. And one time, Shimon Atzadik goes out to to talk to him and tries to appease him. And and Alexander bows before him, and his generals ask him, "Why are you bowing before this sage? Before this, uh, they probably didn't say sage. Why are you bowing before this Jewish rabbi with the long beard?" Alexander the Great says in the Gemara, "I see this person before I go to battle every time, and I know I will be victorious. The visage, the 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 countenance, the the picture of this person is before me. How can I not bow before him? He brings great tidings to me. Unfortunately." He didn't really live very long, Alexander the Great. He, had a very, he died very young, and then his, uh, his empire was split, split among many of his children, I believe, and descendants, and went all over the place. But in general, in the Gemara here, he asks the sages, who is called a wise man? Who is really a wise man? And they respond to him, who is wise? Ezahu chacham haroe es hanola. The person who sees the consequence of their action. A person can foresee what happens in the future, what will come in the future. The Mefarish explains in the Gemara, Haroa es hanolad hamevin melibo masha asid lihios koros sha'atidim lavoven is harmehem. A person should think in his heart, should really contemplate and understand in his heart what the future might bring, what might happen in the future, what might occur in the future and therefore should be careful and plan and to prepare for it. Now this is opposed to or really in partnership with what we see in Perke Avos, which we talk about on Tani Talks Perke Avos. God willing we'll come back in the fall with the start of the school year. We finished season four. We're on hiatus now, formerly the PAL. Now TTP Tani Talks Perke, TTPA really Tani Talks Perke Avos. 
What is the is the smart man? What is the wise man according to Pirkei Avos? Ben Soma Omer, one of my favorite Mishnahs in the whole Pirkei Avos. Really, who is wise? Who is strong? Who is rich? Different interpretations and explanations by Ben Zoma. And he says, Ben Zoma says, Eza hu chacham halomid mikol adam. Shenamar, as the Pasuk says, mikol malamda hiskal tiki edosacha sichali. Ben Zoma said, who is wise? He who learns from every man. As the Pasuk says, from all who taught me, have I gained understanding from Tehillim. The question is, why does the Gemara in Tamid say Ezehu Chacham Haroa Esanolan and the and the Perkeyavos here the Talmud here in Perkeyavos says Ezehu Chacham Alomin Mikal Adam seems to be a little bit contradictory. Either we look for the future, or we learn from people. How can we become wise? Could also be that maybe they wanted to teach Alexander, the great general, the great ruler, a. a an idea that would really appeal to him. If he's the great ruler, the, the ruler of the ancient East, he had hundreds of countries under his disposal, maybe he wouldn't want to hear that he should learn from everybody, that he should learn from his subjects. He might have thought he was power, more powerful than everybody else, more, more royal than everybody else. But an answer he could really think about is to foresee consequences, to foresee, okay, maybe I shouldn't trust this guy, maybe he'll backstab me, maybe I should take better care of myself, maybe... Maybe this, maybe that. Maybe I should think about how to get home and how to get all my troops. That's a good thing for a general, for an emperor to think about. It is good to learn from everybody, but it might not apply to him per se. He wouldn't find it that it's applicable to him. So maybe that's why they gave him that answer. But I would suffice to say a different answer, that we could partner the two answers. In my opinion, the two ways can actually come together. The two ways of what a wise person is called of the Gemara, the Talmud, versus what Pirkei Avos says, are actually linked and intertwined. If you think about it, if you learn from everyone, you can learn how to foresee the future or the consequences of your actions before you do something, especially, God forbid, detrimental. If you learn from the failures and mistakes of the people around you, of those around you, as well as the things that work for those around you, you really could foresee what could work, or God forbid not work, in the future. So you see everyone around you, you talk to business people, you talk to family, you talk to friends, you talk to colleagues, you see what didn't work for them and what did work for them, if you apply that to yourself, then you could see how things can play out for yourself. Then you could foresee the consequences of your actions. So, Ezehu Chacham Halomi Mikal Adam can lead to Ezehu Chacham Haroe Esanola. Someone who learns from everyone around them. Someone who really understands. They say, someone who doesn't learn about history is condemned to repeat it. Why? If you don't learn from the failures of history, especially Jewish history, you don't learn from the mistakes of history, especially Jewish history, you're not going to think how to go about your future. You're not going to think about the consequences of what to do. If we see that there was massive assimilation throughout history when we totally didn't follow Hashem's ways and, and Judaism was lost for generations, and we see the second temple was built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, nobody came, and destruction happened in our days when, when we're Zohar to have the modern state of Israel, in our days when there's a resurgence of Torah throughout the world, how can we f make sure to foresee how those things won't happen again? Learn from those mistakes. Make sure one day we make it to Israel. Make sure 
we make sure to do Torah, to do mitzvahs, and not to fall prey to the secular culture around us, not to fall prey to society around us, but to stand strong. Never did anyone benefit from assimilating. You know, the, the Yamach Shemams in World War II didn't care if a person was secular or religious. They didn't care if they were Dati or they were Chiloni. They didn't care if they were Bells or they were Satmar or they were Karliner or they were anything. They didn't care if you were Lubavitch or you were Hasidish. They didn't care if you were modern Orthodox, Machmir, right, left, doesn't matter. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. If a person stands tall, really appreciates their heritage, clings to it, that's what will get the respect. A person who wants to blend in, throws away the kippah, throws away the Judaism, that's not someone that will ever blend in. They say, the commentators say, that somebody that doesn't do Shabbos, God forbid, the Gayim, the Umot Olam, the nations of the world, will make sure that they'll do Havdalah for you. If a person throws off the yoke of Torah, God forbid, no one should ever know from such things, and thinks they could assimilate and get rid of Judaism, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew is always a Jew. No matter if they quote-unquote convert, which is ridiculous, because a Jew always stands a Jew, and there's no such thing as getting rid of your Jewishness. A person thinks they could throw off anything, it's not true. The, the non-Jews always recognize the Pentelayid, they always recognize that there's a Jewishness involved, and they will still separate you, like the Yamach Shemams in World War II. If we learn from our history, we learn from our culture, we learn from those that came before us, we learn from everyone around us right now, we can really learn how to foresee the future, how to foresee consequences of the future. If we see the rumblings, we see the tidings that it's not so good, it doesn't look so good, there's a 900% increase in anti-Semitism attacks in different aspects of the world around us. There's over 100% increase in cyber attacks on all these stupid apps like Instagram and TikTok. I just read today that there's like a 900% infold in TikTok anti-Semitic verbiage and wordage and attacks on the internet recently. 900%. If we don't see that the undercurrents, the tidings around us, we don't learn, even from those who hate us, especially from those who hate us, we don't see what's going on around us, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, we could not realize what we need to do. Like in the past, people saw that the, that the undercurrents weren't good in, in Germany, they got out. People saw the undercurrents weren't good in Europe in the 1400s and they got out. People saw that it wasn't good in, in this era and this era and in, and in another era. And the Jews knew throughout the times they felt it. They felt it wasn't right. And even in the USA or Europe or anywhere today, we feel the undercurrents of the tides of anti-Semitism. We should have a plan. We should have an, an escape route. God forbid we should need it, but we should realize the only true land, the only true place, the only true aspect that really is ours is the land of Israel. It is no, con it is no coincidence that in the Parsha we just read this past Shabbos and Maseh, it delineates the borders of Israel. To me, it struck very strong to me when I was sitting in shul in the tent and in my shul outside I was sitting and I was thinking to myself, isn't it amazing that we're coming to Maseh when there's so much undercurrents of anti-Semitism, when people are so against us, so against Israel? Dafka, when we feel the tide, the rise of such attacks against us, Dafka, that's when the Parsha about our land comes. And I was looking at the map and looking how fascinating where modern Israel is. It's on the footprint of biblical Israel. Of course, it's not exactly the same. Elad is not technically 
part of biblical Israel, and there's really areas in Jordan, and really areas in Lebanon, really areas in Syria, especially if you think about Everhar Yardin, where Shevet Ruven, Shevet Gad, and Chatzis Shevet Manasha were given in Everhar Yardin when they requested Moshe, and last week's Parsha also, and then they went back to it after Yoshua conquered and divided everything up. But it comes to us to show us that's our land. That's where we should think. Think about where where the history and society is outplaying. It doesn't seem very safe anywhere for us, but that's where we should hopefully end up one day. May it be soon. May Mashiach come. There should only be safe things, good things, wonderful things. That's why Libi B'Mizrach, as the CD from Shweki Lahabzal says, my heart and my soul is in Israel, and I hope that we could all make it there, especially my, my wife and kids, especially our family and friends. It should be soon. But understand, learn from everyone around you. Understand the consequences of the actions. Understand where we're really supposed to be. This is only really temporary. Gullis is not supposed to be permanent. You know, the, the commentators talk about the problem with Berlin hundreds of years ago is that people said Berlin is the New Jerusalem, God forbid. That's what they felt. That's what they meant. Why do you think... So many people did not go back with Ezra and Nehemiah. Only 42,000, not only, but 42,000 people went for Beit HaMikdash HaShenit. They went back to Israel for the second temple. And I, and I see that when it comes up to it and, and it, and it bothers me because you know the Jewish people are not only 42,000 people. Even nowadays, there's a good couple of million of us. If the world is 7, 8 billion people, there's a couple of million of Jews. You know, there's 2% of the entire America is Jewish, I believe, and America is 300 million, so how many millions are in Jew? I can't do the math. But in general, during the times of Ezra, there was for sure more than 42,000 people. So why did only 42,000 people go? Because they felt tied to their temporary lands. They felt tied to exile. Egypt is the new Yerushalayim! Chas v'shalom. Chas v'shalom. But that's what they might have thought in their minds. Ezahu chacham. Haroa etanola. Someone who really sees how history unfolds. People say that the undercurrents in the world are very scary. They're very reminiscent of war times in the past. And we should only be in good times and good things. But Mashiach will come, Emir Tashem. But when will he come? Will we be in Israel or will we be here? Will we be really foreseeing the consequences or not? The two are connected. When you learn from everyone around you, you learn from the history around you currently unfolding and past that unfolded, excuse me, you can learn how to foresee the future. They're really intertwined. So think before you do something in your life. Think before you go somewhere in your life. And I am very jealous, righteously jealous, of those leaving us to go to Israel. Everyone should be Zohar to go. Everyone should have a wonderful trip on the Siyat Tovah. I know of a very good family friend of ours who hosted us in their minion who are making Aliyah. Another good family friend is making Aliyah. One of the uh, administrators in my son's school. And there are many people going, and I wish we could go also, and everybody should be zochet to go. But it should be wonderful that we should all have kibbutz golios. May it be today. That's what we talk about. A really wise person. Ezahu chacham halomein mikol adam. Ezahu chacham haroa esanola. Think twice before you speak. Think three times before you act. A very Jewish trait then becomes that of foresight. As the Gemara above explains, a really smart person thinks ahead of what he might need or what might happen. Hindsight, on the other hand, is not always so helpful. 
unless we use it to learn from our past mistakes or use it to help us better serve Hashem and do good for the world and those around us. H.com points out from author Nesano Yoel Safra, Foresight is the ability to look ahead and make wise decisions that will affect your future. In the Torah portion that focuses on Yosef, and we're going to look at him a few times, our ancestor Yosef uses his foresight to help Paro and the Egyptians store up enough food to survive a great famine. Interestingly, he also talks about the past when his brothers come and they reunite and they say, oh my gosh, what happened? And Yosef says, don't worry, in the past I realized everything Hashem did was for the good. Hakol Avid Rahmana Avid Latova, as the sages say in the Talmud, especially Nachamish Gamzun, Rabbi Akiva, everything Hashem does is for the best. And I know in hindsight, He sent me into slavery, He sent me here to Egypt to set everything up for you. So that's using hindsight as a good tool. Yosef, understanding everything unfolded in order for the family to come and ultimately Jewish people to come and then ultimately be redeemed to come down there. We can use our foresight as a tool to save ourselves from a lot of problems. When I think of foresight, I think of a couple of different characters throughout history and Tanakh. Most notably, we've talked about it once on a different live show, but it's always good to talk about some examples, fascinating examples more than once. So when I think of foresight, among many other examples, I think of the great Rabbi Meir Shapiro founder of the Daf Yomi movement, which just celebrated finishing Tractate Yoma, Chazako Baruch, Mazal Tov, Mazal Tov. And for me personally, finishing my first official Daf Yomi cycle, finishing with Yuma, because I started about seven and a half years ago in Gemara Sukkah, which we just began on this past Friday. So for me, it was very interesting that we came full circle. I started with Dafa Chaim, and then I listened to Rabbi Rosner, and then I switched over to reading Rabbi Art Scroll. We call it Rabbi Art Scroll, reading the travel edition of Art Scroll, a page a day. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Was not so easy to start, but highly recommended, and it's a wonderful thing. But who started Daf Yomi? Rabbi Meir Shapiro. Wikipedia explains Rabbi Meir Shapiro, Yehuda Meir Shapiro, who lived from 1887 to 1933, was a prominent Polish Hasidic rabbi in Rosh Yeshiva, also known as the Lubliner Rav. The Lubliner Rav. He is noted for his promotion of the Daf Yomi study program in 1923 and establishing the Chachme Lublin Yeshiva in 1930, a brilliant yeshiva. I think that's the yeshiva where you had to know 500 shas, 500 blot of Gemara Baal Peh. It might be, I can't remember if it was that one or a different one. During the years 1922 to 1927, Rabbi Shapiro was the first Orthodox Jew to become a member in the Sejim Parliament of the Second Polish Republic, representing the Jewish minority of the country. Rabbi Shapiro introduced the revolutionary idea of Daf Yomi, the page of the day, or the daily folio, a daily regimen undertaken to study the Babylonian Talmud, one folio, a daf, which consists of both sides of a page, each and every day. Doesn't matter if it's Tisha B'av coming up soon, we should only know from Nechama. Doesn't matter if it's Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Doesn't matter even if it's Purim, a crazy day. You must do the daf. Did you do the daf today? Did you? I love how we say that. Did you do the daf like it's a task, like it's an undertaking? Did you do daf? Yes, I did daf. Did you? It's a major undertaking. It doesn't matter what day it is. Every single day. That's a major commitment, right? 
We have to take care of our spouses and our kids every day. We have to take care of our learning every day. It's a daily regimen. Under this regimen, the entire Talmud is completed one day at a time in a cycle of seven and a half years. That's a major Musr lesson. Completing a Talmud just takes one baby step at a time, one daf at a time. So someone says, I can't do it, I can't do this, I can't do that. I'll never be able to do this, I'll never be able to do that. Daf Yomi proves to us, you take one step at a time. You take one daf at a time. But I can't do it seven years! One daf at a time. It's so long, it's overpowering, how could I do it seven years? One daf at a time. Anything you want to accomplish, just put one foot forward, one foot at a time. You're in the present, but you think to the future. You foresee what could happen if you do one daf a day. Just one daf and we'll all be free. One daf a day after seven and a half years, you can complete it. The Musr lesson is one little step at a time. Rabbi Shapiro introduced his idea at the first World Congress of the World Agudas Israel in Vienna on August 16, 1923. The first cycle of Dafyomi commenced on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, September 11, 1923. Now, it is in its 14th cycle. Dafyomi has been taken up by tens of thousands of Jews worldwide. What an unbelievable thing. What unbelievable, remarkable foresight to think of a movement that could accomplish so much learning for so many people in such a simple idea. One daf a day, but it was revolutionary because Rabbi Shapiro thought of it to finish the whole Talmud Bavli one page at a time in less than eight years. Amazing. could also think of the art school movement, which was a major movement to English eyes, I made that word up, a lot of farm out there to bring it to the masses, as well as Feldheim and, and Sufta and so many other Jewish publishers who saw the need, the yearning for spiritual Jewish books, even to read something relaxing and calming or something to dive into a Jewish novel on Shabbos or Yom Tov or during the week. I literally live, one of, not I don't live only for this, obviously, but one of the things I live for to, that I love to do on Shabbos is to sit, I talk about this many, many times, to sit and read a Jewish novel, a good Jewish novel with core Jewish values on Shabbos. And who brought this to a Shar Press from Art Scroll, Feldheim, Sufta, Menucha Publishers, you name it. I've looked into those publishers trying to find as many novels as I could get my hands on. And then we give it to our sisters-in-laws and our mother-in-laws and everybody. And we give it to friends and family. It's a wonderful thing, but before Art School and all these places, no one had the foresight to think maybe we should bring these things that secular culture has, but Jewish culture doesn't. If secular culture has music, Jewish music needs to happen. And, and I love how Jewish music had a huge boom in the past century. I love how the, Jews, the Jewish people thought to take you know, novels. People love mystery, suspense, thriller like myself. People like you know, different types of novels and, and whatnot. And in a lot of the novels, there are relationships. Romance is a whole thing, and Jews make it in a much kosher, clean way. When there are kosher core values, that's a revolutionary way to foresee, yeah, maybe this will be something that could help the Jewish people. So Jewish novels and Judaism, to bring it to the masses, Aish and Or Sameach, different ways of bringing Torah to the masses. And I thought when I first did my podcast, maybe on some level, I could bring a little Torah 
to the masses, and I started out as Mr. T, and 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 uh, and and I went back and forth, and I went to Red T, and now we switched over to Tani Talks. I love audio, I love radio, and I thought, what can I bring to the masses? And again, this is my tiny dollar almost contribution to the massive, massive universe. But what can we do? What can we foresee to bring to the world? That's what it means to have foresight versus hindsight. Hindsight is only helpful when you use it in good ways, but foresight, really, you could think about towards the future. If you can learn to look back with hindsight at what is missing in life, you can use foresight to the future to see how to bring about innovation and affect and effect others for good for the future. Listen to this story, which I forgot where I found, but I believe it might be H.com or Chabad. I'm pretty sure it was H.com. In this story, a couple of kids discover how looking ahead can keep them ahead of the game. Thwop, thwop, thwop. Scott barely managed to control the bike he was riding as the air rushed out of his nail-punctured tire. Oh, rats, he yelled out, a flat tire in the middle of nowhere. He and his buddy Jay had set out that morning on an all-day bike trip around Crystal Lake and now had a fun day which turned into a disaster. Scott kneeled down to check out the damage. It looked pretty bad. Hey, are you okay, SJ? Who had been a little ahead of him and had doubled back when he heard his friend's tire pop I'm okay, but the tire's totally flat, and I didn't bring a repair kit and pump, he said, shaking his head sadly. Now our trip's ruined, and it's going to take me forever to walk the bike back home. Why walk it, Jay smiled. He turned to his bike pack, not backpack, bike pack, and pulled out a pump, inner tube, and flat repair kit. Here's everything you need to be back on the road in no time. After fixing the tire, the guys decided to break for lunch since they'd stopped anyway and there was a pretty clearing nearby. Jay took out a sandwich and started eating as Scott stared into his lunch bags and frowned. What's the matter, Jay asked. I brought a roll and a can of tuna for lunch. So? Unfortunately, I didn't bring a can opener. He'd hardly gotten the words out of his mouth when, lo and behold, Jay dipped into his lunch kit and pulled out a shiny, compact can opener. Here, he said, handing it to his friend. Thanks, but what are you doing with one of these? You don't even have any cans with your lunch. Yeah, well, you never know. I figure we might stop at a store and buy canned stuff or whatever. They soon got going again and were really enjoying the beautiful lakeside scenery when it started to rain. Jay stayed dry beneath the plastic rain poncho he had packed while Scott got soaked until they rode out of range of the downpour. A couple more hours passed. Jay looked at the sky and said, It'll be dark real soon. We should pack out of here and head home, huh? Yes, Scott agreed. But can I just ask you something first? Sure. I just don't get it. All day, whenever things came up, we didn't expect, like that rainstorm, my flat tire, and eating a can opener. You seemed to always be on top of things and ready for it, and I wasn't. How come? Jay laughed. It's because I learned to put my mind headlights on. Huh? What headlights do, Jay explained as he flipped his bike headlights on to get ready to ride, is they light up the way in front of you so you can see where you're going, right? Yeah, so so I just try to use my mind that way and think about what might be coming up and what I'm going to need to deal with. My dad calls it foresight. Get it? I think so, Scott said. Like on a bike trip, a tire might go flat or it might rain. So you use your headlights to prepare in advance, right? 
You got it. Now let's get going. You want to ride in front for me for now? Scott shook his head. I think you'd better ride in front the whole way home. Why? Well, Scott smiled weakly. I really like your idea about mine headlights, and from now on, I plan to think that way and use mine headlights too. But this time I didn't, and I forgot to change the broken bulb in my bike headlights, so unless you go first, I won't be able to see the road. In life, we need to think ahead as to what we may need or want to, or we want on an everyday basis, even on a simple or not so simple bike trip. Think back to what did not work on different trips and think ahead what you may need or want. When we plan ahead, thinking of what we may need or want, we will not be lacking. When my wife and I take our kids on family trips, not a vacation, a relocation, not a vacation, a family trip, notice the difference. We try to think of all the things we may need, including the clothes, the food, the pots, the pans, the bedding, etc. We had a family relocation in January. I tell you, the entire car was packed to the brim. I don't think there was an extra centimeter or inch to spare. It's better to have more than less, to be overprepared than underprepared. We can also compare and contrast. For example, on one of our family relocations, family trips a few years ago, in hindsight, it was not so great to go rent a small house without a washer-dryer. Without a washer-dryer. It was an adorable little house. It was uh, the button, I believe, was the nickname of the house. And it was cute as a button, which is probably what they were going for, but was not cute for not having a washer-dryer. When you have little kids, that is not good. When you have kids that get dirty, Baruch Hashem, and everyone should be Zoha, it is very difficult to anticipate how much clothing to need and to go a whole week without a washer dryer. Not good. In hindsight, that was a crazy decision. The next year, we went back to the same place, but we did not get something that was lacking in the washer dryer. With foresight, we made sure to rent a unit. This time we had a, um, a floor apartment that definitely had a washer-dryer the second time. And we packed half as much. And we were able to do laundry a few times whenever we needed or accident or whatnot happened. That was having foresight. We used hindsight to realize we didn't have the washer-dryer. Foresight, we need to have the washer-dryer coming up this trip. Rabbi Sachs, Zetzal, Allah Shalom, points out on Aish.com. We live life forward, but we see the role of providence of Hashem in our lives only looking back. Again, a very powerful line. We live life forward, but we see the role of providence in our lives only looking back. That is the meaning of God's words to Moshe. You will see my back. Ufanai lo yero, but you cannot see my face. Meaning, you will see me only when you look back. Again, in the story of Yosef, every episode that seems to be leading to tragedy turns out in retrospect to be a necessary step in hindsight to saving lives and the fulfillment of Yosef's dreams. Judaism is the opposite of tragedy. It tells us that every bad fate can be averted. Hence our prayer in a few months on the high holy days that penitence, prayer, and charity avert the evil decree 
O teshuva, sefila, tzedakah, mavir nasra, Tshuva, tfila, tzedakah, can destroy the evil decree. While every positive promise made by God will never be undone. Hence the life-changing idea, despair, is never justified. Even if your life has been scarred by misfortune, lacerated by pain, again, this is Rabbi, Z- Rabbi Sachs talking, Allah shalom, and your chances of happiness seem gone forever, there is still hope. The next chapter of your life can be full of blessings. You can be, in Wordsworth's lovely phrase, surprised by joy. Every bad thing that has happened to you thus far may be the necessary prelude to the good things that are about to happen because you have been strengthened by suffering and given courage by your ability to survive. That is what we learn from the heroes of endurance from Yosef to the Holocaust survivors of today who kept going, who had faith, who refused to despair and were privileged to write a new and different chapter in the book of their lives. From the ashes of the Holocaust rose the modern state of Israel. Do you ever think how fascinating it was that the darkest hour in modern history in 1945 gave rise to one of the most beautiful blessings in modern history, the modern state of Israel, just three years apart? Isn't that amazing? When you see the tragedy unfold, sometimes amazingness is right around the corner. Seen through the eye of faith, today's curse may be the beginning of tomorrow's blessing. Just think about 45 to 48. That is a thought that can change a life. Don't have a negative hindsight bias. Realize everything that happened is a precursor to the future. Have an optimistic hindsight as well as a hopeful foresight to the future. Repetitorsky points out on H.com, Moshe, the greatest prophet known to man, asked Hashem, show me your face. But Hashem didn't let. He only showed him his back. Render as let me see up front why things happen as they do. God's response was, no human being in this lifetime can see or apprehend the meaning of my ways. God did, however, show Moshe his back, intimating, implying that it is only hindsight that will provide meaning coherence and perspective when used well. If you want to use hindsight, use it as a good bias. Use it to learn what Hashem did for you, how He helped you, how He pushed you in good directions. Use it to see the great hand of Hashem and understand where to go and plan for the future. Dr. Miller points out on H.com the entire Purim story took place over a span of nine years. It's only with a hindsight that a series of seeming coincidences, Esther becoming queen, Mordechai being in the right place at the right time to save the life of the king, and other occurrences was revealed to be part of an overarching divine plan. Nothing was the way it seemed. The very things devised to destroy the Jewish people were the instruments used to save them. In hindsight, all can become truly clear. Make sure to use that clearness, to use that hindsight properly, to pave the way for good foresight, to plan properly for the future. H.com's Daily Lift points out in terms of foresight, neglecting to look ahead is a prime cause of unhappiness. 
One who overeats disparages the value of food. A quarrelsome man complains against the blessings of marriage, relatives, and neighbors. By practicing foresight, many evils can be avoided. Rabbi Sachs also points out a lesson can be for the Jewish people today. Plan generations ahead. Think at least 25 years into the future. Contemplate worst-case scenarios. Ask what would, what would we do if... What saved the Jewish people throughout history was their ability, despite their deep and abiding faith, never to let go of rational thought, and despite their loyalty to the past, to keep planning for the future. Always have hope. Always use hope. Don't despair. Think ahead and dream. Really dream into the years unfolding ahead. Nisanel Yoel Safran points out on H.com, in Mikates, we talk about our ancestor Yosef again having this long-term vision when he advised the Egyptians not to eat up all the food that was coming to them during the years of plenty, but to save some from the famine years to come. Yosef's foresight saved Egypt and the world at large from starving and teaching and teaches us an important lesson about life. Listen to the story from the author from Nosano Yol Safran that ties in with just that idea. Really, it was just a class trip, but from the amount of treats and snacks everyone had brought along, you would have thought they were planning a month-long safari in deepest Africa. Bags, bottles, cans, and powders were brought on the van by the armful. How school trips had turned into such big junk food parties, nobody knew. But the fact remained, trips demanded junk and lots of it. Julie climbed in the van in a fine happy mood, raring to go and excited about the trip ahead. In her hand was a neatly packed bag filled with the things she enjoyed eating that would last her the whole day. She had mapped out in advance when she would eat what and felt that what she had brought along was more than sufficient for her needs. She and the other kids had just eaten breakfast together at school and so she couldn't understand at first. Why everyone was tearing into their snack bags right away like they hadn't seen food in weeks. The trip had barely even started. As they got underway, Julie was amazed by the sheer quantity of food that was going around. It was obvious to her that her classmates didn't care so much about what they were eating. As long as they were stuffing something into their mouths every single second. As she was both thinking about all of this and trying to ignore it at the same time, she felt someone rustling around next to her. Her seatmate, Cindy, had taken Julie's food bag, rummaging around in it and tossing her food out onto the seat between them. Excuse me, Julie shouted. What do you think you're doing? Looking at your your stuff, her friend replied instantly, to see if there's anything in there I want to trade for. Trading. What? You know, everyone's like bored with their own stuff already, so we started trading. Hey, almost all I could see here is boring stuff like sandwiches and fruit. Yuck. Where's all your junk food? Oh, there you go. A Chocozilla bar, my favorite. I'll take this, and how about if I give you... Julie was about to grab it out of her hand just in time before she took a huge bite out of it, wrapper and all. Julie was able to grab it just in time. Hey, cut it out! Didn't we all just eat breakfast? And what's with all the snacks sorting? What are we, animals? 
Hey, don't nag animals, Julie, Cindy grinned. I learned in science that they only eat what they need and not one bit more. But then again, they don't get to eat stuff like this. Look, Cindy, Julie tried her best to smile. I brought just what I needed to last the whole trip. If I save it for when I need it, then it will be with me for the trip. So if you don't mind, I'm not really interested in trading or even taking out my snacks until I need them, okay? The girl looked at her like she was from Mars. Come on, Julie, live for the moment! Besides, there will be plenty of places to stop and get stuff once we're there. We'll be able to eat all day! Come on, don't be such a party pooper. Cindy suddenly stood up and yelled out, Hey guys, Julie's not trading her snacks. She's saving them for later. Boo! Everyone shouted as if on cue. A veritable storm of chip bags, candy wrappers, and chewed up gum came flying at her, landing all over her and making a huge mess. Julie was fuming. She stared out the window with her jaw set tight until she could feel herself calming down again. Part of her felt foolish for planning things out and not just diving in like the rest of them. Don't worry, she told herself. You are doing the right thing. Just relax and enjoy the trip. Once they arrived, a few interesting things began to happen. The effects of the snacks had worn off, and after they had barely started down the trail, everyone was beginning to get hungry really hungry this time because they hadn't eaten anything nourishing for hours. They started asking their teacher when they were going to stop off and get something to eat. The teacher responded with great surprise. We're in the woods. Where do you think we can go? A five-star restaurant? It says specifically on the information sheet I handed out before the trip to bring along food for two complete meals on the trail. Didn't you guys bring food with you? The kids hemmed and hawed and finally admitted that they had polished off all of their rations in the van, and anyway, there hadn't been much real food among them in any case. It had been mostly junk food. But you all knew we'd be out all day. Didn't anyone here plan ahead? Asked the teacher. Everyone turned to stare at Julie. I, 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 I just read the handout sheet, Mrs. Greenberg. You said to bring enough to ha- last the whole day. So that's what I did. I separated everything into bags and marked on them what time I would eat them. I mean, I'm okay sharing stuff, but it's really not enough for everyone. Well, if the rest of you had had Julie's good sense, we could go on, but as it is with a long day ahead, and after that a long drive home, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I do not feel that it is safe to continue this trip. I'm afraid we're going to have to turn around and go home right now. But we just got here. Isn't there a store or anything we could stock up again? Asked Cindy frantically. We'll go back to the beginning of the trail, the teacher said, and see if there's an open store or snack stand. But I highly doubt it. It's not tourist season yet, and everything's probably closed. Oh, no! And sure enough, the snack bar was locked tight as a drum. Perhaps next time you'll be able to follow instructions more carefully and plan ahead more prudently, the teacher said. Back in the van, everyone. Julie felt bad as she looked around and saw all the long, disappointed faces all around her as the van slowly made its way back to their school. She felt a tap on the shoulder. Boy, were you ever right, said Cindy. If we'd just been smart like you and planned a little ahead, we'd be having a blast now, not going back to plain old school. And, um, by the way, do you have anything left to eat? I'm all out and really starving. 
Fighting off the temptation of saying, I told you so, Julie handed the girl half her Chocozilla bar to try to cheer her up. She felt bad about missing the trip, but part of her also felt good, knowing it hadn't been her fault, and also knowing that she had been able to plan ahead and be prepared for whatever she might or might not find along the way. A little bit of foresight, a little bit of planning can really go a long way. A little bit of foresight can really save the day. Think about what you want. Think about what you need and plan accordingly. It really can end up saving your day. There are a few characters in Tanakh and throughout the Gemara times that come to mind as well when we think of foresight. Most notably, I think of Moshe and the foresight to change Yoshua's name from Hosea in the episode of the Miraglim from Bamidbar 1316 in Rashi. Those were the men Moshe sent down, but Moshe changed only the name of Hosea to Yehoshua. Why? Rashi points out, by giving him this name Yehoshua, which is a compound of Ka and Hosea, God may save. He in effect prayed for him, saying, May God save you from the evil counsel of the spies. Gemara Sota, the question becomes, if Moshe knew on some level they were going to do this, why did he send them? And that's the question. We don't really have the answer. I'm sure many commentators try to point out different ideas. He was hoping that the goodness of the land would outweigh any evil intentions they had, maybe on some level. But in any case, he sent them. And in, in Devarim, you know, he talks about how I sent the spies. I sent them. Hashem said, you, shalach lecha. You're sending the spies. I didn't say you have to send it. I know the land is good. I'm giving it to you. But in any case, he had the foresight to change Yehoshua's name. And Kalev went to Godavin at the, at the Kfarim in Hebron. That's why he got Hebron. He also knew that something was up. Eben Ezra states... These are the names of the men. After earlier stating these were the names, only Hosea's name was changed to Yehoshua, none of the other ones. The Talmud and Sota points out, Yehoshua didn't go to the graves of the forefathers. Moshe already prayed for mercy for him, and he changed his name to Yehoshua. But Kalev had another spirit within him. He went to go pray at the Kvarim in Hebron, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and he did not participate in the in the terribleness that happened with most of the spies, him and Yoshua opposed the intentions of the spies. I also think of Miriam, who first the prophetess, Miriam Hanaviah, who foresaw to take tambourines with her and with the woman. Exodus fifteen points out Miriam the prophetess, our own sister, took a timbrel in her hand, the woman went with her and danced. Rashi points out, why is she the prophetess? She knew that her mom was gonna have a son who was gonna deliver the Jewish people. And the whole Gemara talks about in Gemara Sota how she talked to her parents that they're being worse than Paro because you're not having girls. Paro said, throw the boys, but you're not even allowing girls because you separated. I know that there'll be something good and her father and mother actually remarried and then, of course, they had Moshe. So Miriam had this, this, this nevuah and had this idea. And how did everyone have the tambourines with timbrels and with dances? The righteous woman in that generation were confident, had the foresight that God would perform miracles for them. What did they do? They brought timbrels with them from Egypt, from the Mechotor de Rabbi Yishmael. Also think about the spies in Yoshua's time versus the spies in Moshe's time. Yoshua went about it in a different way from Yehoshua Parag Bet. 
Yoshua ben Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim, saying, Go, reconnoiter the region of Jericho. They set out, they came to the innkeeper named Rachav, they lodged there. They knew from Rachav, who had all the people coming in and out of the inn, that people were terrified of the Jews. Boom! That's it. We know it's time to go. Some say it was Kolev and Pinchas, some of the only people remaining from the real generation of the terrible calamity of the spies. But Yoshua did it in a different way to kind of atone for the first way of the spies in a much more calm way. Think about Sari Menu. Genesis 21. She sees Hagar the Egyptian having a son and he's mitzachek. What is he doing to Yitzchak? Not a good kind of mitzachek. A bad kind. Making sport. Some say Rashi points out that it means idols and murder and immorality. Three major things. Yaharog ve'al yavor. You, you rather die than do these things, God forbid. All of these things, Yishmael, we're doing. Get him out. Sarah says. Get him out. I don't want this person with my son. She knew it would have a detrimental effect on Yitzchak. She had the foresight to send Yitzchak, uh, excuse me, to send Yishmael away. Also think of Rivka, who tricked her husband to get the rightful blessings for Yaakov in Genesis 27, who also had the context of mind to send away Yaakov from Esau to know that the brothers can't be near each other because Esau was bloodthirsty to get revenge under the pretext of marriage. I cannot have my son Yaakov marry the Canaanite woman. Send him away. And then he sends him away. Think of Rachel and Leah. How, how Rachel made sure that Leah wouldn't be embarrassed when she would marry Yaakov. She gave her the signs, the contact, the Medrash, I believe, points out. She gave the secret signs to Yaakov. Yaakov knew love and wanted to trick them, but she gave it to Leah so that she would have the foresight not to have Leah be embarrassed at the marriage canopy. Further, think of Yosef. We talked about already paving the way for the Jews, saving the whole world from hunger with his economic plan. Think of Yaakov himself not wanting to be buried in Mitzrayim. I'll take Bereni be Mitzrayim. No, please. Hishpiani lemor. Avi hishpiani lemor. In my parsha, parsha's vayachi, I lane it from my bar mitzvah. And oftentimes over the years I tried to lane it. What is Yaakov saying? I cannot be buried in Mitzrayim. Why? He doesn't want to be turned into an idol or a shrine venerated as such in Egypt. He wants to be buried in the Holy Land. Hishpiani lemor. Swear to me, he says. Only because of that swear, by the way, he had the foresight to make Yosef swear to him because on no other condition would Paro have allowed Yosef to go. Commentators point out, because he sweared to his dad, Yaakov must have known on some level that Paro would not give up Yosef easily, the brilliant viceroy of Egypt. You're going to let him go away for a 40-day excursion or whatever to get to Israel and come back? The Egypt's going to be without their brilliant leader. Nope. Yaakov had the foresight to get Yosef to swear to him to do this, and Yosef was allowed to go. Also, Hashem, Kiviachal, had the foresight not to have Moshe be buried in a place we know about, so it wouldn't be turned into a shrine or idol worship, God forbid. Moshe is buried, we have no idea where he is. He's secretly buried somewhere. Some people say maybe it's here or there, but no one really knows. Also, I further think of the Jewish king, I don't remember his name, at the end of the first temple, purposefully, maybe Yoshiahu, maybe, or... or, uh, Someone like that. Hiding the Aron and other items so as not to fall in the wrong hands. And one of the biggest examples I can think of foresight is the fascinating Gemara that, that um, I believe Rabbi Foreman brings down on Aleph Beta in terms of uh, one of the series on Tisha B'Av coming up very soon. We should only know from good things. Rabbi Yochanan Metzak, a fascinating story 
how to save the Torah learning itself. The Talmud eloquently explains, listen to this amazing story in Gittin 56a to b. There were warring factions, fighting factions at the time of basically the destruction of the temple, the second temple really, I believe, at the time of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, before the exile and before everyone is sent about. The Gemara relates, Abba Sikara was the leader of the zealots, the Berione of Yerushalayim, and the son of the sister of Yochanan ben Zakkai, so basically his nephew. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sends a message to him, come to me in secret, he came. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, until when will you do this and kill everyone through starvation? The Berione took the storehouses, they, everyone stored up enough food to last against the siege that Rome was placing on the Jews. They were trying to block them in, but they had storehouses, I believe. The Berione lit the storehouses on fire, I believe, and everyone was starving. So Abisikra ans- answers him, again, the facts are not complete in my mind, but that's what I believe happened. Until when will you do this and kill everyone? Rav Yochanan asked his nephew. Abba Sikara said to him, What can I do if I say something to them? They will kill me. Rav Yochanan ben Zake said to him, Show me a method so I will be able to leave the city. And it is possible through there, there will be some small salvation. Abba Sikara said to him, This is what you should do. Pretend to be sick. Have everyone come. Ask about your welfare so that word will spread about your ailing condition. Afterward, bring something putrid and place it near you to smell like death. People will say, you died and are decomposing, the great Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. And then have your students enter to bring you to burial, let no one come in, so that the zealots not notice that you are still light, because a light body, a zealots know a living person is lighter than a dead person, dead weight. The term is dead weight. Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai did this. Rabbi Eliezer entered from one side, Rabbi Yeshua from the other side. You know, these are actually two of the people I believe in, Perkeyovos, Rabbi Yochanan asked what's the best path of life to take, really the good heart. It's the best thing to have, and then you'll be a good neighbor and a good friend. Anyway, so they come and they take him out. When they arrived at the entrance of the city on the inside, the guards who are on the faction of the zealots wanted to pierce him with their swords in order to ascertain that he was actually dead, as was the common practice. Abba said to them, sticking up for his uncle, the Romans will say that they pierce even their teacher. The guards then wanted at least to push him to see whether he was still alive, in which case he would cry out on account of the pushing. Abba Shikra said to them again, They will say they even pushed their teacher, even their teacher. The guards then opened the gate and he was taken out. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai reached there, he wanted to go to the Roman camp. He came there. He said, Greetings to you, the general, who he called the king. Greetings to you, the king, O king. Vespasian, who was the general technically, said to him, You are liable for two death penalties. One, because I am not a king. And yet you call me king. And furthermore, if I am a king, why didn't you come to me until now? Rabbi Yochanan Medzakeh said to him, As for what you said about yourself, I am not a king. In truth, you are a king. If not now, then in the future. As if you are not a king, Jerusalem will not be handed over into your hand. And as it is written, And that Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one from Yeshaya. And mighty one means only a king. As it is written, And their mighty one shall be of themselves. The ruler shall proceed from the midst of them. From Yermiyahu indicating the mighty one parallels ruler, and Lebanon means only the temple as it is stated, the good mountain and the Lebanon from Devarim. And as for what you said with your second comment, if I am king, why didn't you come to me until now? There are zealots among us who do not allow us to do this. Understanding that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh was prepared to ask him not to destroy the temple, Vespasian said to him, if there's a barrel of honey... And a snake, Derakon, is wrapped around it. Wouldn't they break the barrel in order to kill the snake? 
In similar fashion, I'm forced to destroy the city of Jerusalem in order to kill the zealous barricaded within it. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka was silent and didn't answer. In light of this, we can never... This is really the idea, by the way, in my opinion. Perkevus teaches us, you cannot judge a person unless you're in this place. The Gemara immediately jumps, and Rav Yosef later says, when he read this following verse about him, that Rabbi Kiva applied it, maybe, to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, I am the Lord who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolish from Yeshaya. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka should have replied... The Gemara says, giving criticism to Vespasian, in such a pace, take the tongs, remove the snake, and kill it. And this way we leave the barrel. Kill the rebels and leave the city. Why do you destroy the city? But Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did not say that. Again, we don't judge a person until we're in their place. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was in a major, majorly, majorly, you know, very, tena- very, um, very fluctuating position. He was in a very difficult time. How could we know what we would have said at the time? But the Gemara says he should have said that. In the meantime, anyway, as they were talking, a messenger arrived from Rome and said to Vespasian, Rise, for the emperor has died! And the noblemen of Rome planned to appoint you as their leader and make you the next emperor. Fascinating. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakir already knew this. At that time, Vespasian was wearing only one shoe. When he tried to put on the other shoe, it would not go on his foot. He then tried to remove the other shoe that he was already wearing, but it wouldn't come off. He said, What is this? Rav Yochanan ben Zake said to him, Be not distressed or troubled, for good tidings have reached you, as it is written. Good tidings make the bone fat. From Mishlei, your feet have grown fatter on joy, out of joy and satisfaction. The spatian said to him, What's the remedy? What do I do to put on my shoe? Rav Yochanan ben Zake said to him, having a whole conversation, fascinating, Have someone with you whom you are displeased come and pass before you, as it is written. A broken spirit dries the bones. Again, Mishlei. Mishlei has fascinating sayings. He did this, and his shoe went on his foot. Vespasian said to him, Since you are so wise, why didn't you come to see me until now? Rabbi Yochanan Mezakeh said to him, I already told you. Vespasian said to him, I also told you what I had to say. Vespasian then said to Rabbi Yochanan Mezakeh, I will be going to Rome to accept my new position. I will send someone else in my place to continue besieging the city and waging war against it. But before I leave, since you are so great, basically, ask something of me that I can give you. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh said to him, again, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh is in a very tight position. If he would have asked, I'm asking you, if, the listener, if he would have asked for Yerushalayim, do you think Vespasian would have given it to him? If he would have asked, save the entire Jewish people, would, would Vespasian have given it to him? The Gemara criticized Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh and says, you should have asked for the whole Yerushalayim, save the temple. But if Hashem wanted to destroy the temple, he was going to destroy the temple. Hashem wanted to take his vengeance on, on sticks and stones instead of the Jewish people. He took his wrath out on the temple. So the Gemara will criticize Rabbi Yochanan, but Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh didn't decide to do that. This is what he said. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh said to him, Give me Yavna and its sages. Do not destroy it. Spare the dynasty, Rabbi Gamliel, and do not kill them as, they, as if they were rebels. And lastly, give me doctors to heal Rabbi Sadok. Why did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai do this? We'll talk about it in one second. Again, there's a fascinating series about Yavna by Rabbi Foreman, who explains it much better than I ever can on Aleph Beta. Fascinating, especially for Tishba. Rabbi Yosef read the following verse about him, and some said, Rabbi Kiva, I am the Lord who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolish. He should have sent him to leave the Jews alone this time. Again, we can't judge Rabbi Yochanan. What would you have done at the time? 
It was very smart of Yochanan Zagat to ask realistic requests. Asking to spare the Jewish people, to spare the temple, to spare Yerushalayim, when Rome was on its way to conquest and they were angry, the Jewish people, with the whole rebellion of Bar Kokhba and all the rebels, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a historian. I'm not that wise. I don't know. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said to do this. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai asked for these things. Why did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai do this? He maintained that Vespasian might not do that much for him. There would not even be a small salvation. So therefore he'll make a modest request in the hope he would receive at least that much. Why did he want to save Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Tzadok? Why did he want to save Rabbi Gamliel? Why did he want to save Yavne? They figured out a way to save Rabbi Tzadok with a different remedy. Rashi points out why. Yavne. That was the lifeboat. As Rabbi Foreman explains, that was the raft, the lifeboat, to continue carrying Judaism. It had the sages, it was called Kerem Yavne. Why? Because they sat in rows which looked like a vineyard. The sages sat in Yavne in this beautiful study house in Rose, Karim Yavne. Why did they ask Rabbi Gamliel? Mishpachat HaNasi, Shalot Tehargeim, Shalot Techaleh, Shaltanis Beit David. Not to destroy the royal line of the house of David. The kings came from David. Royalty came from David. That continued with Rabbi Gamliel's family. Why doctors for Rabbi Tzadok? Shalot Yehoyachol Levloa Ochol Afishan Etkartzrum Rabbi Tzadok lived and breathed the Jewish people. He was fasting, I don't know if it was 40 days, 40 years. He basically ate nothing. He like sucked out prunes or figs or something crazy to barely sustain his life because he felt so aggrieved at the situation. A person like that deserves to be saved. Rabbi Yochanan Mezakeh knew that and saved him. Rabbi Yochanan wanted to save the sages. Rabbi Yochanan wanted to save the line of Torah. He had the foresight to figure out a way to save Torah. He wanted to save the royal family from King David's lineage. He wanted to save this great sage who had been fasting a long time. That's what he had the foresight to do. Realistic foresight. Practical foresight. Attainable foresight. That is real foresight. To think of how to save the Torah in a smart, real lifeboat fast fashion. How to save the sages in a lifeboat fashion. How to save the royal lineage in a realistic way. How to save... This great sage, that is a smart way of going about it. When we think about different examples from the Tanakh also and from different sources, like from talking about the time of Paro's dream, Radak points out, when we look at Paro's dream with hindsight, we can't fail to wonder why it was so difficult to interpret. Why nobody could interpret it. Again, at the time, it didn't seem easy to interpret. Basil Ducharme points out the story of Gedaim and Achikam, very sad, that's the whole idea of Son Gedali around the time of uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. He was one of the last sort of leaders of the Jewish people. He didn't believe the Lashon Hara that there was a Yishmal person, hence the name Yishmal, not really good tidings. There was a Rabbi Yishmal, obviously, but this Yishmal was not good. He wanted to assassinate Gedali for whatever reason, I don't know. Maybe because he didn't want there to be such a leader. That was the last uh, person that, the, that the, the non-Jewish rulers let us have. That's the whole reason why we fast. It's such a tragedy. Our last leader, our last hope, our last vestige of hope was assassinated. The story of Gedalia, in, in hindsight, it's obvious that because of his piety to not judge Yishmael's unfavorably or not to accept Lashon Hara, that he could have saved himself. He said to Yochanan ben Korach, you're lying about Yishmael. This comes from Yirmiyahu. What did he cause? The result was that he died and all the Jews were scattered. The last burning coal, the last leader was put out. 
The verse already attributes the killing of that man was caused by him as if he personally had killed him. What they're saying on the, on the verse, all the corpses of the people that were killed by Gedaliah, he should have accepted and taken precaution. But he didn't. In hindsight, it's so easy to judge. Again, don't judge your friend until you've been in his place. We don't understand. We don't know. But he should have taken some precautions. We have to have proper hindsight to understand what we were looking at in the past. We have to take proper precautions for the future, proper safety methods to ensure the proper protection of ourselves. Think about what the Torah Aruch says in Exodus. You look at the plagues with the benefit of hindsight, Paro's obstinacy makes no sense, appears foolish and self-destructive in the extreme. Think about Perkeavos. What is the best way to go? Rabbi Elezer, Rabbi Yeshua, we talked about this before. Rabbi Yochanan asked his students, I talk about this mission a lot. One of the answers, Rabbi Shimon says, Haroes Anolan, really the best path in life, one of the ways is to have good foresight. To have good foresight. Rabbi Shimon says, explaining the English in Perkei a person should always think ahead, contemplate what will be the result of his actions. Always think ahead. Who can, what can be planned out? What can be mapped out in life in different situations and circumstances? Mishlei teaches us, the young use knowledge and foresight. Wisdom lives with prudence, attaining knowledge and foresight. Don't lose sight of it. Hold on to resource and foresight, Mishlei talks about. And Mishlei also says, foresight will protect you and guard you. Those who have foresight will be good to have knowledge. Foresight is not only practical and smart, it's protection for the future as well. Avodah Zara, the Gemara, points out, foresight will protect you and discern it will guard you. Mesil Shishon points out, with great intelligence and much foresight, one can save himself from the snares of the evil inclination and to escape from evil, that it won't rule over us, that it won't mess us up, and that we won't lose out on mitzvahs. We will have great cleverness and foresight to grasp mitzvahs, acquire them, and not lose them. A person who can envision obstacles to success, especially in success against the evil inclination and wants and things to that nature, will be able to map out triggers and pitfalls and circumstances that can cause one to fall and sin or to avoid damage and hurt and problems. Rabbeinu Bachi or Bachai and Barisha points out, the verse contrasts the conditions in the countries surrounding Egypt with those in Egypt, where thanks to Yosef's foresight, the famine was not felt by the inhabitants there and everyone could get food. The Orachayim points out in Vayikra that Proverbs teaches us, foresight will protect you, understanding will preserve you. If you're on your guard against temptation, you'll be fortified against it. We should look back to see what worked or not about those around us as well. See the hand of Hashem everywhere to take the knowledge to prepare for and properly plan and implement for the future. The Cheskuni points out in Boratius, binding sheaves, it shows that Yosef later on rose to greatness by piling up corn in anticipation of a famine, using foresight and providence to save the nation and the countries around him. Prostrating yourselves before my sheep, it was a sign the world would look expectantly to Joseph's harvesting. He was the sole distributor of grain in all of Egypt. And between yesterday and tomorrow, points out politicians, they say, are blind. They're men without foresight. foresight. Men without principles. And that is true to a very big extent. You have to have foresight. Without foresight, it's like you're shooting in the dark. Oblivious to everything around you. Without guiding light to see the circumstances, the situations, and the results. We have to have proper hindsight to understand what we're looking at in the past. To, pra- to properly precaution for the future. Have proper safety me- methods for ourselves and those around us. Think ahead. How you could plan out and map things. Different situations and circumstances. Foresight is practical and smart. And also protection for the future. Envision obstacles to success. Envision how to fight your evil inclination. Map out things. Understand and look back. See what worked or not for those around you and how to implement for the future. 
Don't shoot in the dark. Don't go in the dark. Understand how to have foresight. Understand how to use foresight. Understand why it is so fascinating, why it is so wonderful to have foresight and to have hindsight. If you can learn to look back with hindsight, what is missing in life, you can use foresight to the future to see how to bring about innovation and affect others for good for the future. If you want to use hindsight, use it as a good bias, what Hashem did for you, how He helped you, how He pushed you in good directions. Use it to see the great hand of Hashem and how to plan for the future. In hindsight, all becomes clear. Use that clearness to pave the way to plan purposefully in a good way for the future. Because a little bit of foresight, a little bit of planning really can go a long way. Think about what you want, what you need, plan accordingly. Use the hindsight to look towards the foresight. With hindsight in the right way and with foresight in a good way, you literally can save your life the lives of those around you as well as the world at large. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. This has been Tani Talks Life. God willing, join us next time. Blee Nadir in two weeks when we talk about a topic per session with some practical lessons.